First uh, Timothy chapter number three. First Timothy chapter number three. This morning we're going to read a, a rather not too long, but a, a lengthy passage because we got to get to the context of the last two verses that I want to share with you today. Amen. So as you've given, I'd like to ask you one more time, stand on your feet in the reverence of the Word of God. Amen. Hallelujah. 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 15. Here's what the Bible says. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, be the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children, his submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice or a beginner, lest he be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons, they must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, but holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their own children in the house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. Now verse 14 and 15 is what I want to preach on this morning. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Lord God, we thank you for your word today. Pray that you speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive everything that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. Well, I hope each and every one of you had a, a great weekend this last weekend. Father's Day, enjoyed it. As I mentioned a moment ago, we had an amazing service. It was encouraging to me. Uh, to see these men and these young men in the altars praying for each other and encouraging each other. We need men. Uh, God uh, designed the man to be the, the father of the home, and he designed man to be the covering for the wife, and so we need manliness. Can I get an amen this morning? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I, I told you last week, you don't need to apologize for having testosterone or hunting your animals to eat. You know, we've sissified men in our culture today. Uh, apparently, Facebook didn't like me saying that. They put me in Facebook jail. But, uh, you know, uh, one of our other members uh, this week got in, in Facebook jail for sharing a, a, a Christian post and saying amen on it. So let me tell you, they're on the lookout, and uh, they're hyping back up again. But, you know, the Bible says we've got to let our light shine in the darkness. That's what we've been talking about over this last month, we've had a series we've entitled City on a Hill. And if you started with us in week one, the very first thing that we talked about was being salt and light. Jesus told his disciples that uh, you are the, the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And what would happen if the salt loses its flavor? It's good for nothing. 
but to be cast down and trodden under the feet of men. He says, so let your light so shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That week I challenged you that we need to be uh, the light of the world. Jesus said, no man has his light, hides it, and puts it under a bushel. And I, I encouraged you with the fact that in biblical days, all they had were those oil lamps where they would put the wick and the oil and it would light up and illuminate. Uh, but uh, in today's culture, if you're building, you can go to Lowe's or Home Depot or online and you can spend days upon days lighting. Talk to you about the strobe light. I said Christians don't need to be strobe lights off and on, off and on. I told you Christians don't need to be dimmer switch Christians. Turn the light down when you're around certain kind of people. I told you that we don't need to be on a timer like Christmas lights, right? We don't need to be on on Sunday and off on Monday, on on, on Wednesday and off on, on Thursday. We're to be on all the time. And salt is to be flavorful. Salt seasons, but salt also makes thirsty. There's an old saying that says, you can lead a horse to water, but you, help me out, you can't make him drink. That's true, but you can make him thirsty. And Christians should make the world thirsty for what we have. And so, that's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Then the next week, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. How our job is to be compassionate in the world. One of the ways that we're the light of the world is when we go out into the world and meet needs. And uh, we talked about things that are going on here in our own city. Homelessness, unwed mothers, um, uh, people considering abortion, homelessness, all types of things right here under our nose, drug addiction. And so as the church, our job is to get out in the community and find the needs that we have. That's why we challenged each and every one of us to enlist in some type of service in ministry so that we can be what God has called us to be. Then last week we talked about the role of a father because I said in the beginning of my message, the, uh, the strength of a city are strong local churches. We're going to talk about that this morning. Then I said the strength of strong local churches are strong families because families make up churches. Then I said the strength of strong families are strong fathers. And I talked to you about the absence of the father or the father figure in the home and its role that it plays in the degradation of society. We talked about the distinction between men and women and how that's to be celebrated. And, and we are to um, uh, look at those things as God's grandiose design in creation. And so this week, we're going to finish our series and we're going to talk in our series, The City on a Hill, this morning, we're going to talk about the church, the pillar of truth. The church, the pillar of truth. Um, this morning, I want you to just use your imagination for a second. And I want you to think about amazing architecture. If you've ever uh, been to Washington, D.C., or you've been to Rome, or you've been to any place that has any old, ancient architecture, you see one of the amazing things that you find are the big pillars, posts, or columns, however you want to call them, that are on these buildings. They are massive. And when you think about such a beautiful building, I want you to think about this building representing a community. Everything that is within the community, whether it be its, 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 uh, its people, its activities, its businesses, its um, it's in industry, everything that relates to this community. I want you to imagine it being inside of this building, right? Well, how many of you know that in, as it relates to a building, 
there are two elements to a building that are of utmost importance. One of those is the foundation. How many of you know any building that does not have a good foundation is not going to stand? Jesus gives us a parable about that, about the two houses that were built, one on the sand, one on the rock, and the storm hit both of them. The exterior looked the same, but the storm revealed that one of them was not on a good foundation and the other one was on a good foundation proving the fact that the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust, but whenever rain happens on those who are on the rock, we stand because we have a good foundation. How many of you know Jesus never promised the rain wouldn't come? All right. So we, we looked about that. So foundations are important when it comes to building, but also the structure is important. And in ancient culture, the structure would be the pillars of the building. The, the, those pillars cause everything else to hold together. Now this morning, I want you to imagine what it would be like when these pillars begin to crumble and decay. When the moment that the pillars begin to crumble and, and decay, everything that it's sustaining begins to be compromised. Have you ever drove by a dilapidated building that looked like the wind could blow it over in any moment? And I don't mean a tornado, but just the wind. How in the world is that thing standing? Looks like it could collapse any minute. I don't understand why the city doesn't come and condemn such a property that is in our beautiful city. But you know what? As we're looking at that, we understand that when the foundation and the pillars, the supports begin to crumble, it causes this um, if you will, this breakdown of this building. And, you know, that's the way it is spiritually. The church is supposed to be the pillars of the community. When Jesus was talking to the disciples in our, in our opening text from week number one, when he said, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, you're a city set on a hill. These cities, there were six major cities in Bible days that were set upon a hill. There was a particular one Jesus was talking about here. But at nighttime, it was lit up. But in the Old Testament, these cities that were set upon a hill were called the cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge, when somebody had transgressed or they were running, they could run to the city that was on a hill. And as long as they were in the parameters of this city, they were considered safe. Now that was legal, but David gave us something a little bit different. David in the Old Testament uses the imagery of the house of God as being a place of refuge. In Psalm 91, David says, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High God shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my strength, my strong tower in whom I trust. Then David goes on to tell us about all the things that happen, but he finds safety and security in the house of God. I want you to know something. It might be 2023. It might be a little old-fashioned, but I still believe the church should be a place of safety and refuge from the storms that are outside of it. The church ought to be a place that the world runs to in times of trouble. Now, we saw it in 9-11. At the end of 9-11, the next Sunday, churches were full as people thought America was under attack. Were we on the next World War III? Nobody knew what was going on. But slowly but surely, the world kind of went back to normal. 
But folks, I want you to know the church should be that place of refuge and strength and stability in our community. Is there any wonder why Satan is after men? Is there any wonder why Satan is after families? Because as he begins to break down the fact that he, he works strategically. See, we think Satan is, 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 um, is ignorant. He's not ignorant, folks. He knows more Bible than you can probably ever comprehend. He has walked to and from in the presence of God. Now, he made dumb decisions and his pride got him kicked out of heaven, but he's not no dumb devil. There's organization to the dark kingdom. See, there's ranks and files when it comes to angels. There are cherubim, there's seraphim, there, there are different guardian angels. And, and the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and mights and dominions. All of those are orders of darkness. Satan has a little army out there, and he's trying to work against the people of God. So get, well, guess what? If he can't just blow the church off of the map, then guess what he does? He starts working slowly. He gets into the family. Why? Because if he can pull the strength out of the family, he can pull the strength out of the church. If he can pull the man out of the family, he can pull the strength out of the church. And Satan is no dummy, friend. Let me tell you, he knows exactly what he's doing. But I've got news for you this morning. The scripture says we are not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Church, we are not called to have our head in the sand, but yet to be alert, to be vigilant, to be sober-minded in these days, in this hour, so that we can counterattack our adversary with the Word of God, with the shield of faith, with the sword of the Spirit, so that we can advance the kingdom of God and take back enemy territory. That's what we've been called to do. The church is the pillar of truth. The enemy hates the church. You know, church researchers, statisticians have said that there's not been a singular event in our culture for the generation that's alive today that has affected the church like COVID-19. COVID-19 killed ministries. COVID-19 killed um, uh, habits, killed the faithfulness of some. There are people, listen, there are people who left the church that were faithful in co during, uh, before COVID-19 that have still not come back to church. The virus is, has weakened and, and moved along to something else, but yet people still have not come back to church. Listen, Satan is trying to destroy the church. And the church is God's plan, and the church is the vehicle which God is choosing to use. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in the book of Acts, it was poured out to empower the believer and the establishment of the church because the church is God's idea. The church is made up of the blood-bought, the redeemed people of God from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. And then on the local level, there are local churches that are established when the apostles went out in the book of Acts, they established churches like in Ephesus and Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Philistia. They established churches in Pergamos and Philadelphia and Laodicea. There were churches that were established everywhere because the church was God's idea. But Satan, make no mistake about it, hates the church. He hates it. He hates it. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, 
what would the community look like without the influence of the church? Yeah, it's bad right now. But what would happen if the church came alive? What would happen if the church, I mean, really came alive? Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, for Christ has given you light. What would it be like if, like Lazarus, we came up out of the tomb and said, you know what, no longer on my watch, no longer in my city, no longer in my town. See, the truth is, is that many people have been lulled to sleep by society, easily just going with the motion, following the flow. That's why in our culture today, I know you're here, so I'm not preaching to you. Maybe you're one of those, you're here one week and you're out four, so I am. But here's what I'm telling you. Culture today has not put an emphasis on the priority of church attendance any longer. Therefore, ministries have suffered. Therefore, local churches have suffered. Our education of our young people have suffered because there is no faithfulness in the house of God. And there's not only no faithfulness, but because there's no faithfulness, there is a lack if you will, of leadership. Hello, somebody. I'm I'm about to preach to you from the Scripture. Give me a second. I'm trying to tell you what we're called to be. We're called to be the pillar of truth, a pillar that cannot be shaken. Give strength and stability to our community. Just like the church is a pillar of truth in the community, we've got to stand upright morally, we got to stand upright in purity. That way when the world is shaking, they find a church that's a place of safety. In our passage, in our background, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is talking to Timothy. Timothy was a young guy, one of the youngest pastors that was um, listed in the, the New Testament epistles. He was Paul's spiritual son. Paul raised him up in the Lord. And the Bible records that, that Timothy was the first bishop at the church of Ephesus. See, the word bishop means overseer. It's interchangeable with the word elder or pastor. So when the Bible says if a man desires the office of a bishop, you can insert the word pastor there and, or shepherd and be biblically correct. This morning what we're seeing is that Paul is giving Timothy instruction on the order of the house of God. Because listen, if you're going to have security and stability, you've got to have order. If you want stability and structure, you must have order. And he goes on and he begins to talk about this. And I want to go back to our text for a second before I get into this too much. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm not going to read all of that, but I want us to go back down to verse number 14. Here's what Paul told Timothy. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the the pillar and the ground of truth. Leave that scripture up there. Paul said, "I'm, I'm writing this to you so that you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. I don't know if you have a highlighter, but you might want to highlight that verse. Because see, one of the ways that the world has bought into the lie of this soft, palatable gospel is because we've told people, just come however you are. 
Now listen, when you get saved, that's okay. When you get saved, God will accept you as you are. But after you get saved, He expects you to be disciple. And according to this verse, He expects you to act right. Notice what He said. He said, I write this that you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Paul is talking about the local church right here. And I want you to know something. This is a holy place. Yes, it's just a building. Yes, it's just brick and mortar. Yes, it's just sheetrock with, with light bulbs and pul electricity pulsing through them. But it's a holy place. It's a place we have dedicated to God. It is a place that we have consecrated for spiritual use. And listen, you're not supposed to just act any kind of way in God's house. God, give us that generation again. Listen, I used to have a, a great-grandmother. She had big, bony fingers. Her and her husband pastored up until the day he died. But uh, I, want, I want to tell you something, that uh, when she uh, moved in with my grandmother, took us to church when we were a child, we weren't allowed to sit on the back row and talk and do all kind of stuff. She would take them big, bony finger, them big, bony fingers. When it would either catch the back of our hand or an ear or something. And she would say, we weren't allowed to do all that up and down, running in and out of church. We weren't allowed to just do any kind of thing. Now, I know you might be here this morning. You might say, well, Pat, well hold on. Where did, where did I come to today? You know me by now. I'm not a legalist. But this morning, I'm trying to tell you that the Bible says that if the world is going to take the church serious, we got to have some order. What good does it do for the church to come, the world to come running to the church and when they get to the doors of the church they find the same thing in here that they find out there? I want you to know something that if we're ever going to affect change out there we're going to have to first affect change in here. Hello somebody. That's what the scripture means when it says judgment begins at the house of God. Amen. He said, you've got to know how you ought to conduct yourself. Why? Because it's the church of the living God. It is the pillar and the ground of truth. There was such a reverence for the house of God that he begins to tell us how important it is for us to keep it upright. So, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, we want to look at the qualities of the pillar. The qualities of the pillar. In verse number 1 through verse 7, he said, it's a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a pastor or a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not coarsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children, his submission, and all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice or a beginner, lest he be puffed up and filled with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. However, he must have a good testimony among those who are uh, outside of the church. Listen, when he's talking about the qualities of the pillar, one of the things he deals with, first of all, is the leadership. Leadership is important because the, uh, the people only go as far as the leaders. And, and listen, God accepts us any way we come to Him and He forgives our sin. Nobody's arguing any of that. 
But listen, to be a leader in the house of God, there are qualifications. God's the one that put them in there. He says, if you're going to lead a church, you don't need to be given to alcohol. But yet today, you got preachers who want to drink and justify it. But yet you have a direct prohibition for those who lead local churches to not drink alcohol. But can I tell you something? I have never, never, not one time in my entire life met somebody and said, alcohol made me a better husband. Alcohol made me a better wife. Alcohol made me a better father. Alcohol made me a better employer. But on the contrary, I can find teen challenges and rehab centers full of people who say, I wish I never would have touched the stuff. One of the reasons why God tells the leaders of the church not to touch alcohol is because he knows that what the leaders do, it gives permission for the people to do. And I got news for somebody this morning. If you don't like living in a fishbowl, leadership's not for you. You just be a Christian somewhere. But he holds a high regard to leadership. I want you to notice what else he says. He goes on, he says, they got to have good behavior. You know why you got to have good behavior? Because if you're going to lead in God's church, you don't realize that you lead more people than are just in here. You know how many times my children ask me, Daddy, who's that? You know what I'll say? I don't know. They're none of y'all. I know who you are. Could have been somebody who I did their funeral. It could have been, you know, somebody that watches on Facebook or whatever. But, you know, you got to be on good behavior because you're never off duty. He says, not violent. In other words, if you're going to be a, a leader in God's church, you don't, you don't need to be in the gossip newspaper. For violence, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, uh, uh, not quarrelsome but um, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children is submissive with all reverence. That scripture right there has beat a many of a preacher up. It doesn't mean that your kids have to be perfect. I know mine's not, yours are not. But what it does mean is that when they mess up, you discipline them. It means you don't let them just do whatever they want to do. Because listen, if you can't exert discipline in your house, how are you going to exert discipline in God's house? Ask Eli how that works. Amen? Eli let his kids do whatever they wanted to do in the temple. And the Bible says he died, broke his neck, and he was old and heavy. You know why the Bible said he was heavy? Because in that language, to be heavy was thought to be an undisciplined person. And so his children, who were undisciplined, uh, pulled over into his own life. And his testimony when he died was not a good one. Children have to be in subjection. Then he says what? Can't be a novice. I can't tell you how many times, and novice has nothing to do with age, by the way. I know some young people, younger than me, who are great pastors. But you can be a novice and be 50 years old and you've only been saved two or three years. You barely read the Bible through one time and you're trying to lead the church, you could still be a novice and be older. 
Bible says that a, a leader of the church has to not be a novice. Because why? Because when God starts using them, they get puffed up with pride, and then they're like the devil. They fall into condemnation. You've got to have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. But he doesn't stop with pastors. Then he says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. Not double-tongued. Hello. You know what that means, don't you? It means don't say one thing here and some, one, uh, one thing somewhere else. Don't be double-tongued. All right? Uh, let's look a little bit further there. He says, not giving to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested. Somebody say tested. Churches get in trouble when they put new people who've never proven themselves into positions of ministry because, well, maybe this will help them serve. If they're not serving when you found them, they won't serve when you put them in there. That's my personal experience. Y'all do like preaching from the Bible, right? Hello. All right. So notice what he said. And then he says, um, let these who are tried. Okay, back up. Verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, let these also first be tested then let them serve as deacons, be found blameless. Likewise, uh-oh, their wives must be reverent. Can I just stop right there? Those of you who want to go into ministry, who you marry matters. Well, my spouse ain't in ministry. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. If the two become one, then listen, what they do affects you. Notice what he says. He said they can't, uh, they can't be... Back up. He said, likewise, their, life, their wives must be reverent. Verse 11, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things, husbands of one wife, ruling. So listen, a lot of the qualifications for the deacons are the same qualifications for the, for the pastors and the elders. So I want you to see that. But the reason why I'm bringing that up this morning is because the house is only as strong as are its leaders. It's important. That's why we've got to be selective. You've got to have the calling. You've got to have the character. You've got to have the conduct. Listen, I'm telling you, those things matter. Those pillars and the foundation are two extremely important facets of a building. If there's no integrity, it cannot withstand. Important. Number two. Look at the nature of the pillar. Let's look at the nature of this pillar. Um, When we begin to look at this, the Bible talks about the church is like a household. He calls it the house of God, making up the family. Folks, listen, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, born of the same Father from above. The same blood, the bloodline, the DNA of Christ flows in us if we've been born again. Christ has been uh, born again in our heart and he has redeemed us in our old nature and brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The nature of this pillar is one of substance. Folks, in a house, there's order. There's order. Somebody say order. Have any of you ever built a house before? Or helped remodel a house? Or you've demoed a house? All right? One of the first things that you have to do, you've got to make sure the ground is level and all that stuff, then you've got to lay that foundation. 
Got to lay the foundation. The Bible says that the church was established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ being the chief cornerstone. Okay? Christ was the chief cornerstone. Then the rest of the church was built upon that foundation. What does that mean? The, pro- the apostles and the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament prophesied Christ's coming, right? They prophesied that the Messiah would come, so people were in expectation of His coming. Then the apostles were sent out to herald the message of His coming, His death, burial, and resurrection, and the church was established on that. So after you lay a foundation, then you have to start erecting the structure of the house. In Acts chapter 6, when the church grew substantially overnight, um, the Bible said there were murmuring and complaining amongst the people because the Hellenistic widows and the Grecian widows felt like they were being neglected. But the church had grown so fast because on the day of Pentecost, there went from 120 people in an upper room to suddenly there were 3,000 plus people who had accepted Christ, baptized, and now... There are people everywhere. Let me give you an example. There are probably 160, 170 people in this room this morning. It would almost be like the equivalent of today our church is this size and next week we we run 3,500. Do you think we would have some growing pains? We'd have to figure out parking. We'd have to figure out seating. We'd have to figure out a whole bunch of stuff nursery all of that stuff it literally the growth was a good thing but it threw the church into chaos for a moment the apostles no longer could study and pray and prepare and focus primarily on preaching they were out there serving tables and and putting food and they weren't too good to do that but that's not what their calling from God was and so their response was to find some deacons, right? They said, look out among you, find seven men full of the Holy Ghost, of good wisdom, of good reputation. And he said, uh, husbands of one wife. He gives all these things, and he says, go out and find them, and we will appoint them to this matter. We will give ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Here's what happened. The church had a foundation, but then they began to build a pillar. How I many you know the pillar is important? You know why? Because the pastor cannot do it by himself. A few leaders in the church cannot do it by themselves. you got to put up the pillars and the posts. But then when you start building walls, how many of you know you got to have some support beams? Support beams support the weight that goes against them. Listen, if we're going to have a successful church, and it's going to be like Jesus modeled it, and Jesus built it, it's going to have to be designed after the way Jesus built it. We're going to have to have strong leadership, strong people, and some support beams that can hold up under the weight and the pressure. Because a building is designed to be used. I was on staff at a church one time and occasionally people would want to use our facility for certain things and there's some things obviously that are off limits that we can't use them for but some things are, you know, not that bad. People would get bent out of shape. Why are we, why are we letting them use our fellowship hall? Why are we, uh, listen, what is it here for? To occupy space? Or is the church supposed to be a place where people can run to. They need help. The house of God has to have some order. God's not the author of confusion. 
about the author of chaos. There has to be order. There has to be ministry that goes forth. There has to be people that oversee that ministry. There are things that are so important because guess what? When you get the structure of it right, the nature of it right, then everything else falls into place. Because listen, here's what we got to understand. When the nature of the pillar is right, then number three, the importance of the pillar comes into play. Here's where we drove ourselves to this morning. Verse 14 and 15. Look at what Paul says. These things are right to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, that if I be delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, ground of truth. Now, look at me real quick. Oftentimes, today's culture, people say things like, I don't need the church. I am the church. Well, that's a half-truth. We are a part of the church. We are a part of the church. We're a part of the body of Christ. But if I were to amputate my hand and put it on a shelf, I know that's kind of morbid, my hand cannot prophesy and proclaim, I am the body. You're not the body. You're a piece of it. But it's only the body when it's connected. Why? Because when it's connected, life flows. When the body is not, a piece of the body is not connected, it dies. Folks, how long can a fish live out, out of water? You can take a lion out of the jungles of Africa, take him out of his environment. He'll live a while, but he won't survive. He won't thrive. He'll, he'll survive. He won't thrive. And eventually, he'll die. Because everything has an environment. And listen, Christians are meant to live in community. We're to be a part of the house. We're to be a part of the house. Because guess what? If we're going to be salt and light to the world, and the world comes running in times of crisis, and they need ministry, what happens when no one's here to give it to them? What happens? Nobody's here. But yet slowly, our adversary, diminishing, diminishing the importance of belonging to the family of God and corporate worship, corporate prayer, corporate study of the Word of God, the importance of this pillar on being a city on a hill is to be a place world sees. Oh, they can be like David, run place of safety. Love what David said in Psalms. He said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a greeter in the house of my God than to dwell in the temple of, of, the, of the tents of the wicked. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper, a doorkeeper, the most, you don't even have to have skill to be a doorkeeper. You just smile. David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Because he found it to be a place of refuge. Listen, I'm, I'm closing, but let me just 
show you this. The importance of the pillar, the church, the ground of truth. The church is important because it's a beacon of truth in our community. It's a beacon of truth in our community. Folks, if the community wants to know the truth about immorality, if the community wants to know the truth about why the drugs are running rampant and methamphetamines are taking over our streets and why sex trafficking is slowly trying to creep into the Northwest, if people want to know why all of these things are happening, guess what? The church ought to be a beacon of truth. Be a beacon of truth. It ought to be a place of refuge. Those who are hurting can come. Listen, the church ought to be a center for moral clarity. A place where the sick can come to be healed. Should be a place where the lost can come to be found. Should be a place where the broken can come to be mended. If you think society is bad right now, imagine it without the church. In fact, the Bible describes a day called the rapture of the church when the church is taken out of here. He calls the church the restraining force. And when the church is taken out of the way, evil just has a floodgate to come open. But do you know right now, the church as a beacon of hope, we have the ability to shine our light in darkness. Shine our light in darkness. And let the world know Jesus is the answer. Oh, Lord. Thought of that old Andre Krause song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. Folks, Jesus is the answer. The church, which is made up of you and I, this spiritual house, we've got leaders, we've got pillars, we've got support beams, we've got people. Listen, we are the church when we come together. In the same nature, the church is the church when we're together. John describes the new Jerusalem that way as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is no one person. The bride of Christ is the collective group of people that will inhabit the new Jerusalem. The Lord's bride. Folks, let me tell you something. I believe in the local church. Now listen, our church is not the only church. There are other great churches in our city. There are other great pastors in our city. I like to say it like this. Every church is not for everybody. But there is a church for everybody. God wants the people of God to get connected because when we're strong we have strong community we have strong community when we have strong family we have strong family when we have strong fathers this morning I'm asking you to make a commitment that commitment is this to be a faithful pillar God's church 
asking you today. Say, Pastor, I'll be a support beam. I don't want to be a false wall that has nothing behind it that gives support. I want to be a support beam. When the world comes to the church, I want there to be ministry in the church. When the world comes to the church, I want there to be hope. I want there to be answers. I want there to be things. And listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. For some of you to do some of those things, there's going to be some things you need to give up. There's going to be some things you need to give up. Listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. If drinking alcohol is keeping you out of serving God completely, let it go. Let it go. It's not really worth it. In fact, damaging your family. I know it's tight in here, but it's right in here. I don't have any judgment in my pocket this morning. Because I've not always lived for God. I know what it's like to live in sin. I've been addicted. I've been all of those things. But I also know the power of Christ set a person free. And I know a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And listen, when one of us is strong, it helps the whole. But when one of us is weak, compromises the structure. This morning, I'm asking you today, commit yourself fully to God to allow Him to use you. I want everybody to stand in this place this morning. This unusual, unusual message. This morning, just a few moments, we're going to baptize some men. In fact, men, you can be dismissed and meet me back where we met this morning. We're going to baptize some men this morning. Hope you stay around and celebrate. But today, I would encourage you, men and women in this place, to commit yourself to be faithful to God. Commit yourself to be faithful to the things of God. Men, as I challenged you last week, I, I challenge you to commit yourself to be faithful to your families. Faithful to lead the way spiritually. Moms, grandmas, aunts, uncles, be faithful to the leading your family so that we can be a strong church going in the right direction to minister to the world around us. I want to pray for you this morning. I want every head bowed and every eye closed just for a few moments. The first thing I want to ask you is this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you right now to make a commitment. Listen, the reason why I ask you to close your eyes and bow your head is not, not so that you can save your dignity. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do something real bold in just a moment. The reason why I did that is so that you wouldn't be distracted by anything around you. I want you to search your heart this morning, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I really right with God? Am I really right with God? Take a moment. Ask yourself that. Am I really right with God this morning? 
Have I made my calling and my election sure? Have I acknowledged the fact that without Christ, I'm just a lost sinner, but I needed His mercy, and so I called upon His name, and He saved me. If that's not your testimony today, then it needs to be. Listen, God loves you so much that He poured out a last drop of blood from His body. He loves you so much. Every sin that you could have ever committed, He bore it upon His own body. And He took the punishment so you didn't have to. And then He says, if you come unto Me, I'll give you rest. I'll forgive your sin. I'll wipe your iniquities away. But I won't leave you the same way. I'll, I'll, I'll make you into a disciple. I'll teach you how you ought to act in the world and in the house of God. I'll teach you how to do those things. This morning, the first step is simply to come to Him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask that question today. Pastor Brad, if I'm here and I've heard what you said, and and I'm not, I'm not where I need to be with Jesus. If I were to die today or he were to come back right now and take the church away, I don't know if I'd make it. Friend, I can know. Today we want to help you. If that's you, anybody, slip up your hand. I want to pray with you. Pray with you. Just want to pray with you. These men who are about to get baptized, two of them have given their life to Christ recently. We celebrate that. Next thing I want to ask you is this. Nobody looking around. How many of you here say, Pastor Brad, I'm going to recommit my, myself. This has nothing to do with salvation right now. I want to recommit myself to faithfulness. I want to recommit myself to faithfulness, to serving God, to doing what He's called me to do on my job, in my family, in the church. I want to commit myself to faithfulness. Come on, if that's you, just raise your hand.